Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Many people have heard of the satanic panic. Peaking in the 1980s and 90s, conspiracy theories spread throughout the country that mass child abuse was being carried out on a large scale by satanic cults. Despite the countless accusations of satanic ritual abuse, investigations turned up very little evidence that it was actually happening. In a survey of more than 11,000 psychiatric and police workers throughout the country, conducted for the National Center on Child Abuse and Neglect, researchers found more than 12,000 accusations of group cult sexual abuse based on satanic ritual, but not one that investigators had been able to substantiate. What the organization did find was that there were individual cases of people claiming satanic ritual in order to carry out evil acts. That was what happened when three teenage boys were frustrated that their heavy metal band wasn't succeeding, so they decided to make the ultimate bargain with the devil, sacrificing a virgin. This is Monsters. On April 24, 1980, Elise Pollard was born in Arroyo Grande, a small, seemingly safe town on the coast of California. The early years of her childhood were idyllic. She was a good big sister who made an effort to hang out with her siblings, and every week she accompanied her family to church. In Elise's teenage years, there was a shift in her behavior. The friends that she made in high school were from very different backgrounds, and they were already into drinking and smoking. Wanting to fit in with her new friends, Elise started to smoke marijuana and to drink alcohol. Before long, she was doing it every day. Her parents found out about the extent of her daughter's substance abuse after one of her teachers caught her smoking a joint during the school day, and when she was only 15 years old, they made the decision to send her to rehab. During Elise's time in the rehabilitation center, she made another friend. His name was Jacob Delashman, and he was also 15. Through Jacob, Elise met two more friends, Joseph Fiorella and Royce Casey. Joseph and Royce were familiar with Elise because they'd previously gone to the same high school. However, both boys had eventually been expelled for their disruptive behavior. Jacob, Joseph, and Royce were already an established trio of friends before they met Elise. It was clear to anybody who spent time with the three boys that there was a clear power dynamic in the group. 
Joseph Fiorella was the leader, and Jacob and Royce were willing to follow him, copying his interests and letting him dictate how they spent their time. Recently, Joseph had told Jacob and Royce that they should start a band together. He had always been a huge fan of heavy metal, especially the band Slayer, who he idolized. He wanted to create his own band inspired by Slayer and call it Hatred. Now, I want to explain to you who Slayer is, but I might not be the best person for the job. Instead, I'm going to have my buddy Hockenlode do that. From the moment Black Sabbath released their debut album in 1969, their occult themes and dark atmosphere would set a foundation for what would soon be labeled heavy metal. As they dominated the 1970s, a movement of inspired bands would follow, with acts like Judas Priest, Iron Maiden, and Motorhead adding their own innovation to the growing genre. By the late 1970s, the new wave of British heavy metal would hail from the UK, working to even further define what heavy metal could be. Bands like Diamond Head, Saxon, and Venom would take over the music's underground as the 80s kicked off. Venom specifically, in their debut album Black Metal, explicitly called upon satanic themes and lyrical content to add an element of shock rock to the whole thing. Across the pond in the United States, all of this, as well as the rising hardcore punk rock movement, would culminate in the Bay Area, California thrash metal scene. Metallica, Exodus, and, well, Slayer would turn everything up, making it faster and harder. And by 1986, the speed metal revolution had moved from underground circuits to the mainstream as a direct competitor to the glam metal that flooded the 80s with hairspray and catchy hooks. Slayer would form in 1981, hailing from Huntington Beach, California. Guitarists Kerry King and Jeff Hanneman, drummer Dave Lombardo, and vocalist and bassist Tom Araya would form the band's founding lineup. They would start by playing covers, and with Venom's heavy influence, would incorporate and look to one-up their British predecessor's use of satanic imagery. And they were far from the only bands to do it, with acts like Merciful Fate arguably taking it just as far. It was a perfect storm of mass hysteria and evolving heavy metal that would see Slayer define the thrash and speed metal subgenres. With Rain and Blood in 1986, their third studio release, and what many see as the full realization of the band's potential, they would be firmly established as a heavy metal powerhouse. Of thrash metal's big four, Metallica, Megadeth, Anthrax, and Slayer, they were undoubtedly the heaviest, employing those explicit satanic elements in an age where hard rock and heavy metal were being challenged by Tipper Gore and the PMRC. Invoking the Morningstar was a clear act of anti-censorship in a Reagan-era United States. Their fans and followers to this day have a reputation of being one of heavy metal's most fervent and devoted, with more than a few carving the band's name into their arms as a pledge of allegiance after the artwork for their 1994 release, Divine Intervention, would feature such an image, obviously prompting others to follow suit. They were a serious inspiration for many bands, and optically, it's not hard to see how three troubled teenagers would fall so deeply into the subject matter. But to most, Slayer was an outlet for that aggression and angst, and in no way was meant to be any sort of call to action beyond moshing and headbanging. Violent people seek violent media, and when that isn't enough, they bring that violence into the real world. Despite Joseph's lofty ambitions for the band, Hatred wasn't an instant hit. He refused to acknowledge that they might need to tweak their style or practice music together before performing or releasing songs. Instead, Joseph had a different plan to ensure that Hatred would become famous. For the past few years, he had been extremely invested in the occult and practicing devil worship. It was something he believed aligned well with his love for heavy metal music. Now, many people link heavy metal music with Satanism and devil worship, but in reality, it's not really as common as most think. 
And I'm using the term heavy metal in a broad sense in order to cover everything from death metal to glam rock. Sure, there are some heavy metal bands that claim to worship Satan, but the majority just use lyrics about the devil, demons, and hell as more of a sense of theatrics in their music. Many of you know I'm a huge lover of music, and though I tend to wave my flag for the punk genre more than anything else, I definitely spent many years listening to my fair share of death metal bands. Even as an angsty teen from a broken, abusive home, not once did I think any of those bands was trying to convince me to worship Satan. In my opinion, you have to already want to commit evil if you're able to let a song convince you to murder. Joseph believed that Satan was the answer to making sure his band was successful. In exchange for that success, all they needed to do was carry out a sacrifice. And not just any sacrifice would do. Joseph was committed to his new musical career and he wanted to make sure he did things right the first time. That's why, one day in 1995, he sat Jacob and Royce down and told them that they needed to sacrifice a virgin to Satan. Almost immediately after, the trio began to plan how they would carry out the sacrifice, and they realized that they knew exactly who they would target as their victim. A blue-eyed, blonde-haired girl who was in a vulnerable position in her life, and trusted the three boys to take care of her. They were going to sacrifice Elise to the devil. After choosing Elise as their sacrificial lamb, so to speak, the trio continued to spend time with her. One night, they asked Elise if she wanted to meet up and smoke some marijuana, planning to murder her once they had taken her to an isolated location. They tried to plan out every detail, guaranteeing that things would go smoothly, but the night didn't go exactly how they wanted it to. Instead of deviating from their plan, they decided to wait and sacrifice Elise on another occasion. Elise disappeared on July 22, 1995. Nobody reported seeing anything suspicious in the area. She had left no clues behind and she hadn't told anybody about where she was going. One day, Elise had been living her life like normal and the next, she had vanished. Elise had been a missing person for eight months when the Arroyo Grande Police Department were contacted by a clergyman about a disturbing confession he had heard from a teenage boy. The boy in question was 17-year-old Royce Casey, and he told the police that he could show them where Elise had gone. The officers weren't sure if he was playing some kind of prank, but by this point, the Elise Pollard case was going cold. They were willing to follow any lead, even if it seemed unlikely. Then, Royce took the officers to an area only a few miles away from Elise's house and led them to a dense patch of forest. He was able to show them exactly where Elise was, and it was immediately clear that she was no longer alive. From the state of decomposition of Elise's remains, it was clear that she had been dead for most of the eight months she had been missing. Royce had just implicated himself in Elise's murder by leading the police directly to her body, but he made no effort to try and prove his innocence. Instead, he began talking openly about the crime, admitting that he had killed Elise along with his two closest friends at the time, Joseph Fiorella and Jacob Delashmut. As Royce began to tell his story, he systematically answered each of the questions that police had been trying to figure out since the day Elise disappeared. Elise hadn't told her parents that she was going out because she knew they wouldn't approve of the activity she was sneaking out to do that night, meeting up with three boys to smoke pot. In fact, Elise had made a habit of sneaking out of her home when she wanted to smoke or get drunk. 
Royce had been the one to call Elise on July 22nd and ask her to meet up with him, and after she agreed to sneak out, the trio set their plans in motion. They took Elise to the patch of woodland where her body was later found, and when she wasn't expecting it, they ambushed her. After spending about 15 minutes passing around a joint in a grove of eucalyptus trees, Jacob pulled off his belt and Joseph took out a hunting knife. Royce's role was to restrain Elise by holding onto her arms, allowing Joseph to wrap the belt around her throat and buckle it. The boys held Elise in that position, keeping the belt tight until she became limp. After checking that Elise was unconscious, the three attackers took turns stabbing her with a hunting knife, inflicting a total of 12 stab wounds. As they stabbed Elise, she fell down, sobbing and calling for both God and her mother. Once she was lying on the ground, the three boys began to stomp on her neck. Confident that their victim was either dead or dying, Joseph, Jacob, and Royce proceeded to sexually assault her. Once they were done, they left her lying in the woods. Later, they planned to come back. However, the boys had been wrong to think that Elise was dead when they left. During her autopsy, the medical examiner concluded that the stab wounds would not have been fatal with medical treatment, and the strangulation had not been severe enough to result in immediate death. Elise's cause of death was prolonged blood loss from her stab wounds, and she may have survived as long as a couple of hours after the attack. Periodically, the three boys made their way back to the crime scene with the intention of having sex with Elise's corpse. They continued to commit necrophilia weeks and even months after she died. Roy's told that to the officers in a matter-of-fact way, which took them by surprise. They couldn't believe that the teenage boy was readily admitting to committing necrophilia with the months-old corpse of a girl they had killed. Royce explained himself, saying that he had since become a Christian and deeply regretted his actions. Despite his regret, he expressed fear that if he didn't come clean, he would harm another victim. Royce told the officers that after finding God, he had also stopped talking to Joseph and Jacob. He firmly believed that both of his ex-friends were extremely dangerous people and he was certain that Elise wouldn't be their last victim. He wasn't just scared that Joseph and Jacob would murder someone else, he was scared that, one day, they would murder him. The police tracked down and arrested Joseph and Jacob and quickly discovered that Royce had been right about the dangerous path that the two boys were heading down. Neither of them had any remorse about murdering Elise, and both of them had considered carrying out another human sacrifice in the future. Joseph, Jacob, and Royce each received a sentence of 25 years to life, which all three accepted without contest. The three murderers had each idolized the thrash metal band Slayer, and eventually the case did get Slayer's attention, but not in the way that the boys had hoped. After hearing that their daughter's murderers had been inspired by Slayer's lyrics, Elise's parents decided to take Slayer to court, accusing the band of writing lyrics that encouraged listeners to carry out violent acts and engage in devil worship. The Ballers legal team would focus in on 1986's Rain and Blood and 1990's Seasons in the Abyss, and more specifically on two tracks, Postmortem and Dead Skin Mask. Postmortem's lyrics are a pretty formulaic continuation of the way the band would tell dark satanic stories. They effectively just touch on tropes of ritual sacrifice, evil spirits, and scenes of literary gore. Dead Skin Mask, on the other hand, is inspired by notorious killer Ed Gein, who, fun fact, is technically not a serial killer. Instead. Gein would rob graves and use human skin and bones to craft morbid furniture and... art? 
and though Gein's body count ended at two, the discovery of his messed up arts and crafts hobby would be sensationalized across the country in a time where events like that were unimaginable, let alone unheard of. Both tracks are a far cry from an instruction manual to do anything, and by that point were simply shock value expressions of art utilized by not only Slayer, but an entire movement of black and death metal bands that would take it even further in intensity. Continuing a trend of bands getting heavier and darker, working hard to earn their parental advisory labels. But with no legal precedent, the Pollers' understandable but misplaced efforts would be dismissed. Undeterred by their initial loss, the Pollers would instead aim for the band as a whole, as well as their record label, American Recordings. They alleged that both parties knowingly and intentionally spread material that harmed minors, encouraging them to participate in vile acts and devil worship. They made claims that their music was a casual factor in the murder of their daughter. But with the wider population beginning to wake up from their satanic panic, and with freedom of artistic expression on the table, they would once again be dismissed by the court. Ultimately, their efforts would serve to further reinforce the freedom of artistic expression protected under the First Amendment, effectively achieving the exact opposite of what they set out to do. Elise's father, David, said, quote, This case isn't about art, it's about marketing. Slayer and others in the industry have developed sophisticated strategies to sell death metal music to adolescent boys. They don't care whether the violent, misogynistic message in these lyrics causes children to do harmful things. They couldn't care less what their fans did to our daughter. All they care about is money. However, despite the way that Elise's parents felt about Slayer's music, the second lawsuit was also dismissed, with the judge stating, quote, I do not consider Slayer's music obscene, indecent, or harmful to minors. Jacob DeLashman agreed to an interview in which he commented on the Pollers' lawsuit against Slayer. He said, quote, The music is destructive. That's not why Elise was murdered. She was murdered because Joe Fiorella was obsessed with her and obsessed with killing her. Slayer themselves mostly avoided talking about the case, but their drummer Paul Bostoff argued that they had no responsibility. He said, quote, They're trying to blame the whole thing on us. That's such nonsense. If you're going to do something stupid like that, you should get in trouble for it. He also mentioned that the three killers hadn't even followed the supposed instructions in the song lyrics. They had carried out the virgin sacrifice and the necrophilia in a completely different way. In 2016 and 2019, Royce Casey's applications for parole were denied, but in 2021 he was found eligible for parole for the first time. At his hearing, the parole board asked Royce about his people-pleasing traits, which were believed to have contributed to his willingness to murder Elise. Royce answered, quote, One of the biggest fears I have learned about myself is the fear of judgment. And if I'm tied in that, and I'm more concerned what people think of me, in my past, I've tried to please people to protect myself from perceptions of when I was a little kid, and being hurt, and not having the ability to communicate or express or ask for help from people that can help me. Initially, the board believed that the statement showed that Royce hadn't developed enough self-awareness and insight into why he had committed the crime. But then, the following year, the decision was overturned by Justice Hernando Baltadano, who said that the governor had ignored other evidence that Royce had insight into his own crimes, such as a statement that Royce had submitted to the parole board, which included a 10-page-long discussion of the different factors he believed had led to the crime. 
Royce's attorney believed that, without Royce's confession, Elise's body might never have been found and she might have remained a missing person, without any closure to her family. He also praised Royce's conduct in prison, saying, quote, he hasn't committed any further crimes. He's educated himself. He's developed marketable skills. He has profound remorse and regret and shame. He counsels and mentors other prisoners inside. He is an exceptional person. His crime is forever deplorable, but he is not, as a human being, that same child that he once was when he committed the crime 27 years ago. In 2023, the California Court of Appeal agreed that Royce's insight into his own actions was not sufficient and that parole should be denied. Because Royce was relatively young, the court believed that he was physically capable of carrying out similar violent crimes and they also thought that, because he lacked insight into Elise's killing, he was also mentally capable of killing again. The court had evaluated the contributing factors that Royce had identified, a fascination with death metal music, marijuana use, and feelings of hurt and anger, and concluded that those were things typically experienced by many teenagers, almost none of whom go on to murder another innocent child. The court ruling said, quote, Almost everyone feels hurt and anger at some point in their lives, yet they do not plot for months to kill an innocent person and then execute the plan in a particularly brutal manner. As much as Elisa's death is a tragedy, blaming Slayer or heavy metal music in general is not the answer. Studies have shown repeatedly that violence in media does not cause someone to become violent, and an evil person will go on to commit evil acts whether they're exposed to violent media or not. These three teens did not commit violence because they listened to Slayer. They committed violence because they were monsters. If you want to see more Hawk and Load, you can check him out on YouTube and other social media. There are links in the description. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. This website is set up so that, at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught seeking help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility. Call 911 or call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline by simply dialing 988 in the United States. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will talk to you about any mental health issue you may be facing. If you are a member of the LGBTQ community and suffering from discrimination, depression, or are in need of any support, please contact the LGBT National Hotline at 1-888-843-4564 or go to lgbthotline.org. Thanks so much for letting me tell you this story. If you enjoyed it, subscribe on whatever platform you're on, hit like, rate us, or leave us a comment. You can check out our other show, Somewhere Sinister, on YouTube or anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, check out our merchandise at thisismonsters.com. The link is in the description. Thanks again, and be safe.